You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Paul Leinwand, who is at PwC Strategy and is the author of Essential Advantage and the follow-up strategy that works. I thought it was a very insightful book. I'm really glad you have decided to join us. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. So if I could summarize the book, and I think you have as well, you say that the key to successful companies really boils down to coherence. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, we're going to dig into it in, in quite a bit of detail, but you know, just to summarize this concept of coherence that you developed with your co-author in both books, and, and how does it really differ from you know, this capabilities approach that was developed by Edith Penrose and Jay Barney and others. Yeah, great, great starting question. And by the way, I love when people summarize the book for me. That's a, that's a good way to start. I mean, if you think about business choices and if you think about decisions that executives are making, they're making decisions all the time, whether they are consciously doing it or not, that affect the ability for that organization to be successful. And our view is that decisions that add to this idea of coherence linked to a right to win, linked to higher profitability, more success, achievement of objectives, however you want to define it. But what is coherence to your question? Coherence is really the link between what you state to the world that your purpose is, what value you're going to create, the capabilities you're building that deliver that value, right? These kind of like a math equation, right? I'm going to deliver low prices. Well, you know, I might need some procurement, capabilities and logistics capabilities that drive low cost. And then the third element is your portfolio, right? So if I've got a set of products and services that don't really matter to that promise to the world, that's going to drive incoherence, right? Because I'm going to have to service all of those other businesses. Whereas if these three things are working together, we generate a lot of coherence. There's a microeconomic argument here, which is that there's a lot of scale not at the company size anymore, right? That was probably, you know, back 40, 50 years ago, but in capabilities. And so therefore, if these things work well together, if I've got a clear value equation, if I've got a few capabilities, I can drive a lot of economic scale behind those capabilities and bring that scale to all of the portfolio businesses. So I think in the book, you said that um, a lot of people start with the wrong question when they're doing strategy. And, and that question they normally ask is like, you know, where, where should we go? And, uh, and I think you say you should really start with the question of who you are, right? And what makes you what you are. And, and later we'll talk about this as sort of a, how you can approach this as an individual leader. But for now, we'll stick from the corporate perspective. Do you think that most companies don't really know what they are? Or is it that they, they really aren't anything, you know, coherent? So that's, the, that's why they have so much difficulty figuring out what they are. Yeah, I mean, the first challenge is I think we were all taught to define our organizations by kind of what goes out the door, right? So I'm selling product X, I'm delivering service Y. That's okay. That kind of makes sense, right? I mean, it's a it's kind of a very tangible way of defining what the organization is. But actually, the organization has to be much more than that. And so we always say, don't define the organization by what it sells, but rather, what does it do? That's who you are, right? And those are those capabilities, those unique strengths that you bring to the table. And I mean, there's some really nice examples, right? I can think about products or I can think about the capabilities to create products because products are going to go away. I mean, 
probably not going to last forever. If I have the capability to create new ones, that's that's what's powerful. You know, I could think about my energy company has, you know, a certain reserve, but it also wants to find more energy, right? And so that's the capability that's pretty important to a long-term sustainable path. And so the first problem is often just getting away from this definition of we sell X, we deliver X, what do we do? I also think your point is a good one, which is not everybody may have an easy time doing this, right? There's a lot of organizations that have grown up. Maybe they got bigger through acquisition and they're selling lots of different things. And it's a little hard to know what does this organization stand for? What is its purpose? What is its place in the world? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't answer the question. My strategy class, one of the cases we do is Disney and you know, the way the case is defined is really like, okay, you got all these different industries. What industry should you be in? You know, should you be in the media business? Should you be in the entertainment, whatever? You know, they, they go into a lot of different things. And if you go into too many things, you run the risk, you know, defining your company as the company that makes people happy or General Mills was, you know, the company that makes stuff for people, right? And when you look at that, you, you realize that this is a desperate attempt to try and impose some kind of, of coherence or definition on something that's kind of grown in, in a rather haphazard way. No, absolutely. And I mean, we do see lots of organizations that have expanded in so many different directions. And by the way, this is true for nonprofits, right? I mean, nonprofits, their coherence is usually about, do they have a clear mission, but then are they delivering all their services or what they're doing against that mission? Or do they have donors maybe that are pulling them in lots of different ways, maybe great things, but that's not really core to what the purpose is all about. And again, it's not just a distraction sometimes doing many things, but you know, we do have to be great at things, right? We do have to deliver capabilities that meet our mission. And if we're trying to build 35 of them in an amazing way, that might be tough. And, and you mentioned mission. I think increasingly we see companies that, that have these mission statements and these kind of definitions of, we'll get to the culture piece later. And I mean, we, or we could jump in right now, but Facebook, Google, all of them, will kind of have some fairly broad mission statement. You know, we're here to bring people together and, and so forth. And then they'll have some defining principles that like Amazon has 14 of them, but at the very top, and I can't remember Amazon's, I think it's, you know, put the customer first or deliver value to the customer or, or something like this. Do you think this trend towards mission statements is a healthy one? Do you think it's inspired by the, the kind of thinking that, that you've been doing over, over the years? And does the formulation of that mission statement, is that in itself a way for companies to figure out, you know, what their strategy is or ought to be? I mean, first of all, there has been a tremendous amount of effort to create these mission purpose, you know, set of values. There's lots of different language around it. Most of the time, those efforts are kind of disparate efforts, right? So it's like, we need a mission statement and there's a mission statement effort that's created. And that's sometimes done by marketing could be done by maybe an HR group. It's possible that if that organization has an incredible strategy with a really well-articulated value equation to its customers and really well-articulated capabilities, you could run a disparate exercise and sum that up in a really great mission statement, a really great purpose statement. But most of the time, those organizations haven't solved those issues and they try to solve them through the lens of a statement, which is not, in, in our experience, the right way to do it. Right? We want to answer the fundamental questions first and those fundamental questions should then inform what the purpose is. But I, I will say we are at a time now where revisiting purpose statements makes all the sense in the world. But again, doing it not hopefully just because of the statement, but really answering these questions. I mean, 
employees alone, right, require an understanding of why are they there? Like, how is my job connected to what this organization is doing? And what is this organization doing? And if the organization can't define what it's doing, it's actually hard to, you know, bring that to me. But people show up to work every day and they want to know how they're contributing. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a lofty goal. It just has to be tangible. And I think too many organizations lack that. Lacking an understanding of purpose isn't just a problem for the strategy. It's a problem when all the people that are required to transform the organization don't understand why they're there. So I think we're seeing, you know, a renewed interest. And, and the last year with, with COVID-19, there's been almost like a recall of the importance of purpose, right? People were showing up, they were producing necessary equipment and food and getting it through our supply chain. So people understood the value of purpose. And I'm hoping and I think we're hoping in general that people really use this as an opportunity to go back to the basics and answer those questions and make sure everybody knows what is this organization here for? If this organization disappeared, you know, what would happen? Who would miss it? And, and you mentioned that companies that have what you call coherence abnormal returns. And you mentioned a, an empirical study that demonstrated this. What's the metric that you use to capture this coherence and, and how do you avoid it being kind of retrospective, right? I mean, a lot of business journalism is it's kind of backward looking, right? You know, you find all the successful companies, try to figure out what made them in common. And what you really want to do is, you know, identify some characteristic that's predictive of performance downstream. So what's the metric? Is there a coherence test that a company can put itself through? Yeah. So uh, a few thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, the coherence analysis that we first did, which was published in an article on HBR, looked at coherence as a metric for several industries. And essentially what it's measuring is pockets of revenue that organizations have and whether they're sharing the same capabilities or not, right? And so the more of your revenue that's sharing similar capabilities, the more coherence you have. And so we assessed, you know, lots of organizations in several industries and then looked at, you know, EBIT performance. We looked at TSR and could see this very strong correlation, which again, kind of makes sense. So rather than, you know, searching for random metrics, it was in our experience, right, that proactively companies that had done this performed well. Our book, Strategy of the Works, which, which you showed earlier, was not a book that essentially looked at, well, let's find the top 50 performing companies and go figure out what did they do. We actually had a pretty strong view of what was successful. Given all the research we had done before, we looked for companies that, yes, were successful, but were successful leveraging this approach, you know, so it wasn't, you know, kind of, well, let's just kind of find what's in common, but rather we knew these companies had a lot in common already. And we weren't looking to sort of go find the next thing. This was, this was the way that we understood companies to be successful. And so it's a little bit of a different approach. Whether companies can look at coherence, absolutely. There's a coherence test on the PwC strategy and uh, website. There's one that really asks some of these tough questions. So you can answer them. And there's another that actually gives you a sense of your coherence and where you are and what the issues that you face. None of this is perfect. If there was a perfect metric and we've always looked for one that could define coherence, you know, we would have, you know, probably had that out there. This does take time, it does take effort, but so does strategy, right? So does really good leadership. Thinking through why does this organization exist? What can it bring to the world? Yeah, and one thing I liked in the book is you you mentioned a lot of things that business managers and leaders and strategists always highlight as desirable characteristics. And you kind of point out the dark side of all of these characteristics. And if, if they're applied incorrectly, then they result in presumably the opposite of what they're intended to, to provide. 
wondering if you could go through some of them. I mean, focus on growth, for instance, that's something, oh, well, I mean, who can object to that or pursue excellence? Like who can object to that? Or, you know, go lean, be agile, right? These are all slogans and things that that everybody uses to motivate the troops, but each of them has uh, a drawback if implemented poorly. Could you walk through some of those, some of your favorites? I, I have my favorites, but love to hear yours. Yeah. And, and what's amazing about this is this is the conventional wisdom that we're sort of taught and that we also see through experience. So yeah, let's take the first one, right? So many organizations want to grow. That's a really, really normal objective, admirable objective. Organizations feel like if they don't grow, they can't continue to invest. The companies that we researched would talk about this a little differently, though, that growth is the outcome of an advantage, right? So if we have an advantage and we know what the advantage is, like growth will come and it needs to come. But it's not about seeking growth. And that actually has super practical implications in terms of how management and how leadership thinks through this. If you send off teams to look for growth, I can find all kinds of growth that's possible. Whether that organization is going to have the right to win, the capabilities to deliver growth in those areas is a different question. And we've seen right countless examples of organizations that are chasing growth and not only not achieving the growth that they're chasing, but then their core business also suffers, right? And so these companies said, you got you to figure out your identity. You've got to answer those tough questions. We know there's a market out there for what we are driving. You know, one of the examples from the book, you know, that we we really like to talk about for this is Ikea, right? I mean, you know, Ikea has a very, very clear view of the world and what their role is in it, you know, started with this idea that furniture, you know, was either hand-me-downs or, you know, very wealthy could afford it or people could build it. And there was a big market for them and they would bring value to that, you know, particular area. But they also were clear about the capabilities needed and they have some incredible capabilities, You know, when their designers design tables or chairs, they're not just building something beautiful or designing something beautiful. And then later, you know, the supply chain costs it out and the marketing team figures that out and they argue a little bit. No, the designers actually understand the cost implications as they're designing. That's a that's a differentiated capability. And that capability is very important given their value proposition. I think this idea of like figuring out your advantage Now, once you have that, IKEA can take that to lots of different things. It can grow in different ways, different geographies, different product segments. As long as it's asking the question, are those product segments going to value the purpose that we we drive? Another great one is the one about organization and culture, right? I mean, certainly we see lots of organizations that like to reorganize themselves, rethink about the operating model, the lines in the boxes. You know, these organizations said, yeah, I mean, we can reorganize, but it's kind of the same thing. Rather, let's figure out our culture. Let's really understand what the behaviors are and how that can support growth, right? Support the strategy we have. So yes, I mean, I think we're taught a lot about how to run organizations and the basic you know, tenets to that. But I think this book and the research behind it provided us a new view on maybe a better way to go. Ikea did have some issues with online order fulfillment <laughs> during the uh, pandemic, for sure. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned the growth treadmill. A lot of people criticize managers for doing share buybacks and, and so forth. And it seems to me that if the opportunity is not there, this seems like exactly the right thing to do, right? If the growth is not there, at least it's not there in a way that's channeling your, your capabilities, then by all means, make that money available to somebody else who might have an opportunity. There's a really interesting discussion, by the way, about, you know, investors, because I think investors want 
organizations to be coherent. In other words, an investor can have 10 different, you know, organizations that they're essentially funding. Those organizations can be doing very different things. That can be a very well-balanced portfolio. But to have every company try to diversify risk may not make as much sense, especially when you've got this concept of capabilities and trying to be specific and trying to add value in the right ways. And so I think this this idea of kind of how investors view organizations and how leaders view that same question, I mean, that's something I, I think needs to be dealt with. And I think it would drive more specificity for what an individual organization is trying to achieve. Well, you mentioned that when you talk to some folks, they say, well, the conventional wisdom is what dominates most of the firm. But then within every firm, there are these Navy SEALs, right, or special forces, and 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 they live up to the ideals that you articulate. In other words, there's people within the organization who are assigned the role of essentially being the folks who can combine strategy and execution, and then the rest of the organization is left to run on autopilot, more or less. How do you take that special forces mentality and diffuse it throughout the organization? Yeah, I mean, this concept has, you know, I think a few different applications. First of all, on the upside, right, there are some amazing capabilities that I think every organization has. And part of the challenge is figuring out what are those capabilities. We often get the question like, well, that's great. You know, we know we're good at things, but like exactly what are we good at and how do we figure if that has value in other places? And so part of the exercise, I think, for many leaders is trying to identify the special forces that are driving some incredible capabilities. It's also true within culture that we'll find individuals that really represent not only the cultural attributes, because those are what they are, but they're using those attributes to affect incredible change. And, you know, we can call those culture champions. I mean, there's lots of pride builders, but, you know, these are also special forces that leadership can access to really help drive a transformation ahead. The, the special forces thing, though, has a, has a risk. Sometimes we see pirate ships that are built in organizations, right? You know, digital. It's like, mm-hmm. we've got to become digital. So let's create a little digital team of special forces. I mean, there are times where that might be smart, but I would say in the long run, we have to digitize our capabilities. We can't build all these things on the side. We have to upgrade our organization in terms of what it does. So we have to be a little bit careful with the special forces application and make sure that we're truly thinking about how to transform the entire organization rather than just we've got some teams in different places that happen to be unique. Well, a lot of people talk about how there should be people in charge of strategy and others in charge of execution. And I think you've you've taken the approach that you run a danger if you separate them too much. You really want to close that gap. And rather than having people whose job it is to do the right thing and others to do things right, like you want to have that gap closed. How is that even possible? I mean, don't you need to have soldiers on the ground who are just executing and, and then you have others who are back at headquarters thinking about the grand strategy? So, you know, this division between strategy and execution has a lot to do with the way we think about those topics as much as it is related to the people that are maybe doing the work. And if we think about these as different topics, in other words, strategy is about the future and it's about the direction and making choices. Execution is taking this strategy somehow and putting it in place. I I think that's sort of already a bad start. You know, strategy has to encompass not just there's a wonderful direction, but what is it going to take to actually get that done? The best way to think about these two concepts is actually through cost, right? And so if you think about a company's cost structure or a budget per se, the budget is essentially 
the organization's ability to deliver strategy. I mean, that's how I think about it. But not a lot of organizations think about it that way, right? The budget is this other exercise, kind of a painful exercise. I don't know, maybe the finance function has to run it and strategy is sitting over here. Well, if that's the case, we're never going to execute our strategy because the cost choices and the portfolio of investment has to be directly linked right in the strategy, right? So we have these vehicles, which right now sometimes separate strategy and execution, and we have to bring them together. The other interesting thing is leaders. You'll see at the end of that book, we had done a study on, you know, how did organizations view their leaders in terms of, you know, do they have the skills to think strategically and did they have the skills to think about execution? It was a very small percentage of leaders that were sort of seen as being great at both. Yet all of our research shows these are the leaders that understand how to think big, but also make it happen. And there's lots of stories in that book of leaders that actually did both. It doesn't mean they, those were the people executing every day. It just meant we had to bring these concepts together and we had to make sure that the choices we were making were executable. At my organization, we have someone who has the dual role of chief strategy officer and chief operations officer. And I, I always thought that must be a very um, difficult job unless she has a, you know, a split personality because those two roles require operating on very different gears. You know, there needs to be a connection, but it's, it's very difficult to think in both ways simultaneously. I was just going to say that the firm had done a study a couple of years ago about the chief strategy officer. You know, one of the big findings is that this role can be a powerful role, right, if kind of delivered in the right way, right? The, the CSO, the chief strategy officer, essentially is that objective perspective to the rest of the business, right? They, they typically don't own a huge budget of people on their own, so they don't feel like they have to negotiate. They're there to make sure that the businesses are delivering, but also we're thinking about the future. And I think that that position can be an amazing leverage point for the CEO. But unfortunately, we don't always staff those jobs in the right way. We don't always give them the right remit. They don't always have a seat at the table, or maybe we don't always have the right you know, individuals that are there. But it can be a powerful position, but sometimes it doesn't get delivered that way. Uh, you said you had a provocative idea for, I don't know whether it was just uh, tongue in cheek, but you mentioned kind of the chief coherence officer right, in, in the book. And I thought that's an interesting role. Maybe that's what the chief strategy officer ought to be doing. Maybe that's how they ought to think of themselves. Yeah, I think someone does need to hold the organization accountable, right, for some of these difficult choices. Because choices, again, we're living in an environment of lots of change. We have to make choices all the time. Some of those choices are going to be incoherent. That's okay. I, I've not found a perfectly coherent organization. In fact, there's some value in the incoherence if it's deployed well and experimenting new things. But if we lose track of our coherence, right, we may be very incoherent. We may not have the right investment against the important things. And so someone needs to hold that role. It can be the CEO. It can be the board, right? Because the board actually has often a longer term mindset and experience and can look after some of those important questions. But someone needs to own that. Now, when we're talking about identity, a couple of things. One is a lot of the companies you mentioned have very kind of strong founders and those founders more or less imprint onto the organization, some kind of vision, some coherent vision, but those founders always go away. To what extent does the disappearance of a founder doom in, in some way, the coherence of the strategy? Do you need to have the, the vision of the founder continually 
refreshed. I love the story in Adidas about the role of the, the shoe museum. So this was not about the founder. The founder left behind an institutional legacy that, that could serve as the icon that would bring everyone together around a coherent vision. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are some amazing things about organizations that can trace their way back to a very clear vision or a visionary. I don't know that I have seen necessarily more challenges or less challenges from a strategic perspective. I think these issues are always a challenge. There's always a requirement to make sure that that organization is both up to date with its strategy but also working from a position of strength. Doesn't mean that that position of strength has to go, you know, 100 years back, but in some cases it can. I think more important for us to recognize that strategy is one of those exercises that does need to be refreshed, but we also can't let it hold us hostage, right? In the sense that, well, the world is changing so much, I can't make any strategic decisions. We still need to make those decisions. We still have to stay accountable to the decisions we make, but it's also very reasonable that we should be refreshing our strategy. We should be updating it. Our value proposition may change. Our capabilities may change. But let's make sure we're still coherent. Some of the examples you used kind of, I felt, tested the limit of coherence, in particular Lego, right? Lego has more or less become an entertainment company or a digital gaming company to some extent. And if you had told me 20 years ago that that was the direction they were going to go in, I, I would have thought you were insane. And and one of the examples that I used in my exam in my strategy class was Cross. Cross Pens at some point decided that they wanted to create a, a writing pad, right? Which was like a word processor. <laughs> so I asked this, the students in the exam, like, well, what do you think about this? Is this, is this a good move? And in my view, I thought it was just a ridiculous move, right? Because their expertise is not in putting, you know, words into digital format. It's really about the the ink and the, and the mechanical devices and so forth. And I don't think the cross pen was successful, but, but Lego has been very successful in this transformation. Well, I mean, this is something that we face all of the time. That if we go back to that growth idea, organizations look at adjacencies you know, as almost like a matter of instinct. You know, I'm in this business and I got four businesses around me, or I have this brand, which happens to be incredibly strong. And where else can I take that brand? And there are stories where this works, actually. I mean, adjacencies can work. We just like to ask the question, you know, hey, in that new business, right, are you bringing something that is sustainably going to give you a right to win? And more often than not, those are pretty specific capabilities. I can do something that that industry can't do right now. Think about some of the insurance companies that are now essentially managing the process of warranty repairs of phones. You know, for probably a long time, it was the mobile players that were doing that, right? But the insurance companies actually understood how to manage claims, how to manage the process. They had capabilities that were unique. So some of these adjacencies can be wonderful. We just wanna ask that tough question before we just assume, well, we've got a brand, there's a lot of growth over there, the category is growing. Let's get in. That's a different different way of thinking about it. And so the I think the second item on your list was how do you turn the strategic into the everyday? And you mentioned it has to do with organization. It has to do with the knowledge and the relationship between this tacit knowledge and the explicit knowledge. Can you talk a bit about that? How do you take this, this strategic perspective and, and push it all the way down to the extremities of the organization? The, the second act, if you will, contrasts this idea of being great at everything, right? Functional excellence, which also sounds wonderful, right? Like, you know, we really want to develop 
best in class processes and we want to follow benchmarks. But unfortunately, you know, if everybody followed benchmarks or best, in class, we'd all be the same. Like that would not be a, a world of differentiation. And I think we know what happens in terms of, you know, cost structures and commodities when that we kind of start to see organizations replicate what everybody's doing. These organizations in the book talked about, you know, translating that strategy into the everyday, building these incredible capabilities. I think the analogy that someone had used once in, in, in one of these organizations was it's like an architectural blueprint, right? You're building something very complicated. You've got to think about all the connections. You've got to think about which functions are involved. Most really great capabilities, like an innovation capability, is not owned by R&D, right? It's bringing specific resources from probably three or four functions together. And you've got to think about the connections. You've got to think about the output, what data is being used, what tools, what are the people that I need, the individuals, how do I incent them? How do I have them work together? We've seen the emergence of these, you know, cross-functional teams, but now kind of in permanent structures where we've got the chief innovation officer rather than the chief R&D officer or the chief, you know, kind of risk officer. And so there's been a lot of very specific work that's happened in many industries to build these incredible capabilities. But I think what we learned from the, from the research was you're not going to be able to do this in a lot of places. you got to pick the, you know, we said three to six, which was in our experience, you know, the maximum really of the differentiated list and then put all of your energy into building those. One of the companies in the book, actually, their CEO would essentially use the management team and the agenda to go through capability by capability on a rolling basis. How are we doing on this area? What is our aspiration? What are others doing? What can we learn? How are we getting better? How are we getting more efficient? How are we bringing that to all of our businesses, right? So when this becomes important, it also takes a big place in the agenda of how companies are run. Yeah. And I think when companies are evolving very quickly, it definitely rises to the fore. But if when companies are static and kind of doing the same thing over and over again, I think people start to obsess on, on routine and, and uh, lose sight of why it is they're doing what they're doing. Agreed. Agreed. That's, a, that's definitely a challenge. And again, going back to like, do we even know what we're great at? I mean, I think if we knew what we're great at, we'd probably spend our time understanding, does that offer value? Can we get better at those things? But if we're not asking those questions, it's hard to have that conversation. Yeah, I think that takes us to culture. We had an exercise at the Haas School of Business almost about a decade ago where our, our dean decided that pretty much everything was copyable except for culture. And I remember we had our logo was something like uh, leadership through innovation. And, and I remember going to a Wharton event and theirs was like leadership and innovation. And so it was, it was like, well, wait, all, all of us are kind of doing the same thing. And if, if one school introduces a, you know, analytics initiative and the other school introduces an analytics initiative and everybody's just copying everybody, but culture is really hard to replicate. And so we went through this exercise of, of articulating our, our culture. And you talk about that, that exercise about how you, you can dig into the company and figure out what are those, those few things that really are differentiators in terms of culture and uh, figure out who are the exemplars of, of that culture it'd be nice to, for organizations to have something off the shelf that they could do just to figure out really what are these non-imitable cultural artifacts and ways of doing things that already exist within the organization. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an important topic and I like how you frame it, right? I mean, this should be tangible, right? And I think too often culture is very 
esoteric and amorphous. I've learned a lot, you know, in my career from someone named John Katzenbach. And, you know, John basically had created the Katzenbach Center, which came from the Katzenbach firm, which studied this for a long, long time and, and really came to the conclusion that, you know, first of all, we can't fight sort of a culture head on. I mean, it's just really, really difficult if, you know, you identify things you don't like about the culture and you say, we're going to somehow get rid of them. That's not a particularly successful path to take. You know, he and that and the Katzenbeck Center also did a lot of research around how do you identify these cultural attributes? And importantly, not to pass judgment on the attributes, right? Because a lot of cultural attributes have positive and negative. So for instance, you know, we can talk about a culture is very like consensus driven. Like that is usually said with a little bit of like negative implication, right? It's like, well, we're kind of slow at decision-making, but actually there's times where being consensus driven is wonderful, right? Some decisions you want to bring people along and you want a lot of input and there may be other decisions where you don't, but being able to identify what are those attributes that might be positive or negative is a good first step because you can then start to figure out how do I put energy into the positive side of all those attributes. Which of those attributes might forward my strategy? You know, one of the one of the companies that we researched in the book was Natura. This is, you know, sometimes thought of as personal care. They're making a lot of amazing products based out of Brazil. And they were very focused on, you know, care for the environment, care for people, but they integrated their culture directly in their strategy and execution. Right. So when they would look for new ingredients out of the rain, they would be doing assessments on who gets impacted by that, who benefits from this, where is this coming from? And then that would actually, you know, it was important that they do that because that's what their culture stood for. But by the way, they would use those stories as they would sell the products, right? This is, you know, where this comes from and this is what it's used for. And here's the history of it. And our manufacturing plant that was built to produce this employed these workers and worried about this in the local environment. So this kind of stuff isn't just important because we want a certain culture, but it actually can help us very specifically with our strategy. And so that's what we're looking for, a connection between here's where we're going and here's those attributes that can help us get there. Another thing that you, you mentioned in the book is has to do with, you know, cost cutting. And I'm glad you actually mentioned that because, you know, in so many circles around strategy right now, we're now always just talking about dynamism and so forth and forget that costs matter to some degree. I mean, in my strategy class, we, we still do relative cost analysis, you know, old school. This was the bread and butter of management consulting back in the day. And you highlight why, you know, cost cutting and, and cost consciousness can, can go wrong. I mean, it, it goes wrong so often that I think some people just try to avoid the topic altogether. And I've certainly seen this in university setting where whenever there's a, a crisis of some kind, we just apply across the board cuts, you know, peanut butter cuts, I can call it peanut butter, just got, everybody takes 10%. It doesn't matter whether it's, I mean, in the pandemic, cutting digital stuff was probably not a good idea, right? For, for a university or for a company. Does this mean that the, the accountants, right? Those people are usually thought of as the, the least strategic people in the organization. They have to be brought on board as well with, with strategy and really understand the cost of everything and the, uh, the returns on everything, right? I mean, first of all, as you say, the, you know, the approach of cross the board cuts is really not particularly effective. And, and the way I think about it goes back to the budget, right? It's politically uh, feasible, politically more feasible in many cases and easier for the administrators to deal with, right? They can tell everybody 
hey, you know, I can't have favorites here. Yeah, I mean, it sounds equitable from the beginning, but that's based on the assumption that your budgets were perfectly allocated before that reduction, right? And we know that budgets are a history from year to year and they move a little bit, but could we imagine that somehow our spending is exactly in line with what the situation of today requires? And so we really encourage organizations not to think about it as, well, take 10% out of every area, but also to think about this as a positive exercise, not a negative one, right? So if you think about cost cutting as this is going to be painful and we're going to take cost out and we have to do it, or I think about cost cutting as like, this is the precious investment to go do the amazing things we have to do. And uh, during the last year, during the pandemic, I mean, there's been some investments that have really been important for organizations to make both in terms of people working from home and just accessing customers and consumers, getting to know what's going on in the environment. I mean, there's a lot of really important things. So if we just took out cost everywhere, we'd miss the opportunity to serve our customers better and to create hopefully more profitability in the long run. What I think is important exactly to your your point is that, well, what do I do instead of this cross the board, which is actually rather easy to say. And what we encourage organizations, what we learn from organizations is build cost cutting in all the time. You know, back to Ikea, you know, there were lots of stories about how they force reductions in price so that they can actually create the atmosphere to think about cost cutting every year, right? If not more often, because their whole value creation is about being efficient, which is also a cultural attribute, right? Because we got to remind people that we're not going to waste any money and that we're going to put everything back in the product. And so I think there's lots of vehicles. There's also thinking about those capabilities again, right? So every function invests behind important capabilities. So if you can identify what's important, you can ask the question, well, shouldn't we be spending more in these areas? You know, and maybe there's some other capabilities that are kind of lights on. You have to have them, right? But I don't have to invest more than the industry does. I would want to invest less. And then maybe there's some, you know, capabilities, we call them table stakes, right? You kind of have to have them, your competitors have them, you have to perform, but you're not going to win off of that. And I think often we don't really know how we're investing, right? We kind of just don't have that classification or mindset. And so I think in a cost exercise, you can create a lot of positive value by rethinking the cost base. It's it's not easy though, obviously. Nike is amazing. I was looking at buying some bookshelves and the price on the bookshelves is is actually it's kind of the same, maybe even lower than it was in 1987 when I bought the identical bookshelf from my apartment. It's kind of amazing. That's part of the whole model. And I, and I think a lot of organizations do that, right? They they really think carefully, again, partly because they also probably want to avoid the position of having to do a bigger cost exercise, right? So if you're just always looking out for your costs, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I found this very helpful at the end of the book, you mentioned that all of these principles that you've articulated about companies can apply as well to, to individuals. And I find this interesting because when I teach my strategy class, I often end with a very similar observation that, you know, when it comes to developing capabilities, when it comes to avoiding imitability, when it comes to having coherence in in your career, these are all principles that were developed for business strategy, but they also apply to career strategy, to individual strategy, and, and the leaders within an organization have to exhibit them in order to make their 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 efforts credible within within the companies. Did you originally have this idea in mind when you began the book or did you realize this as you were writing the book? 
You know, it's it's possible we may have realized this actually in our in our class. You know, I think in in discussing this book and the research and what came before it, I think it was very apparent that you know a lot of individuals when they're looking at their careers, you know, they follow the growth. I mean, it's sort of the same logic, right? They they see what everybody else is doing. They're attracted to that for whatever set of reasons, and they don't always step back and you know, think about that same framework, right? What is my value proposition? What can I offer? What are the unique capabilities that I have? You know, how am I going to spend my time and what type of organizations are going to value that? So yes, I think the, as you point out, it's a really important lesson for all of us to, to ask that question. I, I think there was a period of time, right? In many organizations where it was like, everybody had to be great at everything, just like functions want to be great at everything. And I, I certainly think there's a recognition you know, that teams require diversity and that with amazing skills and putting people together in the right way, we can create incredible outcomes. But I think there's some self-awareness there as well. Like, what can I do to enable that team? And with that, I would hope there would also be less of that direct competition, right? Recognizing that, you know, you're not going to compete in the same way. You're not going to contribute in the same way. And I think for a lot of MBAs, one of the knocks on MBAs is that they're, they're, they're not people that have oftentimes think super carefully about their own purpose statement or their own mission statement or their own core set of coherent capabilities. And so one of the most exciting things for me about teaching MBA students is when I, when I see them uh, start to do this and develop this, this kind of perspective, it really lets me know that they're likely to be more successful. I think that applies everywhere. You know, I mean, I think people can be 30 years in business and you know, sometimes lose the, lose the drill a little bit in terms of, you know, what value they're adding and are they being coherent and thoughtful and are they working on the right capabilities or are they filling in the wrong ones? There's so much pressure to fill in weakness. There's just so much pressure to do that. And we're kind of taught that, you know, early on. And so somehow understanding, you know, where do you go? There's a, there's a great story by a, a, a friend of mine, John Coyle, and he's written a great book on design thinking. I mean, he's, Olympic medalist. And he talks a lot about the fact that when he was in the Olympic team, they were forcing him to work on things that he wasn't good at. And like over and over and over and over again. And it actually just made him worse at the things he was good at until he quit the Olympic team and did it on his own. And then one set this incredible record kind of, you know, racing to his strengths, he called it. So I think the, the lesson definitely applies in lots of great ways. Yeah. Focus on what you're good at. This has been great. Paul Linewant, not only the author of this book, co-author of this book, Strategy That Works, but also teaches at Kellogg Northwestern University's Business School. So thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.